If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. You got all these great answers to all these great questions. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. When God created everything, He originally pronounced all things good. So how do we end up with fallen angels and a fallen humanity? Do I forgive someone who refuses to repent, and what does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., live on this Friday afternoon, January the 12th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Dr. Craig Evans joins us after that to discuss biblical archaeology's top discoveries of 2023. Then we'll get a history of modern Pentecostalism with Dr. Nancy Almodovar, Adjunct Professor of World Religions at Park University. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is Associate Pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. He's author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, he's Pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel, Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Todd. First for you, Pastor Wolf Miller, Tom says, the word says that if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are to forgive those who trespass against us, but what if they are not repentant or seeking forgiveness? It's a great question, and and maybe before we think too far about it, because it's such a pastoral question, it's good to talk this one through with your pastor, especially if there's specifics, if there's sins committed against you that you're really wrestling with. Because the Bible teaches us two things. One, what the Lord does with the sins that we commit, and what we're supposed to do with them and what the Lord does. We confess them and the Lord forgives them. But what about the sins that are committed against us? And this is a huge part of our Christian life. And Jesus gives us instructions about it. And in fact, we include a prayer for the Holy Spirit's help in the Lord's Prayer. Every time we pray it, forgive us our trespasses as we are forgiving those who are trespassing against us. It's this assumption of our Christian life that we are sinning and we're being sinned against and that the Lord's forgiveness rules over all of these. Now, the question here that Tom asks is, what if the person that sinned against us isn't asking for forgiveness, that maybe they don't even know that they've sinned against us, or maybe they do know that they've sinned against us and they don't care, or that they're happy that they sinned against us and hurt us, do we forgive them in that case? And again, this is a a pastoral question, but the answer is yes, we are called to forgive, that we are not holding people's sins against them. Now, an important thing to note is this, is that there's consequences to sin, and Sometimes we distinguish between the spiritual consequences of sin, which is the wrath of God, and the temporal consequences of sin, which would be getting thrown in jail or losing your driver's license or something like this, losing friends, hurting someone, breaking a leg. There's temporal consequences to sin. And the Lord, when he forgives us, he takes away those spiritual consequences of sin. 
he doesn't always take away those temporal consequences of sin. And in fact, for us, as we are repenting of our sins, one of the parts of repentance is being willing to suffer the consequences of our sin. If I'm repenting of cheating on a test, for example, then part of my repentance, rejoicing in the Lord's forgiveness, is that I go to the teacher and say, I cheated on the test and I face the consequences, whatever that is. The same thing is true when we're forgiving other people. It doesn't necessarily take away the temporal consequences. If someone's always bullying me when I go down the block or something like that, I forgive them. That's sin, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I just hand myself over to be bullied all the time. There's a way that the temporal consequences of sin have to be faced up. And I think one of the reasons why we're oftentimes afraid to forgive is that we think the temporal consequences, we're erasing those. But part of forgiving is recognizing that it is not up to us to execute justice on the person. At least normally it's not. If we are a judge or if we are a parent or something, executing the temporal consequences of sin might be our job. But if we don't have those offices, we're handing that over to God and to the other people given authority to take care of it. And so we are called to forgive and to recognize, and I think this is a helpful thing often when people are wrestling with the pain of being sinned against, is to recognize that there is no peace in justice. We are always tempted to think, well, if we could just get justice in this situation, then I would feel better about it. I would I would be happy again. The things would be right in the world. And there's, I mean, the classic scene is the family leaving the courtroom when the person who murdered their son has just been given a death sentence. And, and they've been fighting for that justice. And then they get that justice. And the reporter says, well, how do you feel? And they say, they're just as miserable. Now, that doesn't mean it was bad to pursue justice. But it does mean that justice is to be pursued for justice's sake, not for comfort's sake. And the Lord has given to us in the cross this perfect convergence of justice and peace, and it looks like the forgiveness of sins. So short answer is, yes, we forgive, even if a person has not yet come to repentance or asked for forgiveness. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Elise says, should we be using the name Jehovah when referring to God? What's that about? Before we do that, though, Todd, if I could just add two things uh, about what Pastor Wolf Miller was saying, is that when Jesus is on the cross, remember, I mean, he is being sinned against. They're putting him to death, right? Unrighteously, they're putting him to death. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's the same thing with uh, Stephen when they're stoning him. I mean, they are murdering uh, Stephen. And he's doing the same kind of thing as Jesus saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So we see also this, this opportunity to, to pray and to intercede for others that even if they have not repented or they have not asked for forgiveness or recognize that they've done this against us. So in both of these, we are asking God to not hold this sin against them as Christians. But going to the name Jehovah, I, I think that this becomes an issue when you have either a family or a friend who is a Jehovah's Witness or a Jehovah's Witness knocks at your door and says, you must refer to God as Jehovah. Well, whenever somebody says you must do it this way, and it's a certain group that says uh, we're the only ones that know this and nobody else does this, that should always be a red flag. 
But uh, Jehovah itself is coming from the King James Version of the Bible. Now, at one point in time, I thought that Jehovah was used throughout the Old Testament, the King James, but it it was brought to my attention. That's not actually the case. There's really only about seven times in the Old Testament that the King James is using Jehovah. And ironically, some of these times are when an altar is being named, like in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham names an altar Jehovah Jireh. Or later on in Exodus 17, Moses names an altar, Jehovah Nissi. Or later on in Judges chapter 6, Gideon names an altar, Jehovah Shalom. And so you're taking that name of God and you're placing it upon that altar so that you understand that this is the place of God's promised presence in that name there. But the other accounts, only four other accounts in the Old Testament, if I'm not mistaken, is that uh, the King James was using Jehovah, specifically in Exodus chapter 6, where Moses wants to know the name of God, the God in the bush, the 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 angel or the Malach uh, Elohim, the one who is God himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, my name is Jehovah. Or later on in Psalm 83, where it's his name alone is Jehovah, and he's the one who's most high over all the earth. Or even in Isaiah chapter 12, uh, you have that Jehovah is my strength in my song. Or in Isaiah 26, Jehovah is an everlasting strength. In the Old Testament Hebrew, there is no J. So the issue is when somebody's telling you you have to use this letter J in the Old Testament, well, that's that's problematic in and of itself because you're getting this from the King James Version of the Bible. But more academic realm right now, what we say instead of Jehovah is Yahweh. So instead of a J, we use a Y because what we're trying to do is we're trying to transliterate, take equivalent English letters for the Hebrew. And the Hebrew really is this Yud, He, Vav, He. So that's kind of like Y. H V H or W. Uh, the problem, of course, in English, we pronounce a W with a W, but in German, they pronounce it with a V. But what we do in the academic world, and that's what we're using now, is that name Yahweh. And it's in that, that Hebrew word Hayah. I mean, really, it's rooted in the verb to be. So he is the one who is, or like he tells Moses, I am who I am. He is the one who is, the one who is eternal. Um, but the key here is that I personally like to use the name Yahweh to, to express a name in particular. Typically in our English translations, instead of saying Yahweh or Jehovah, typically we say Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, because we inherit that from the rabbis who refused to speak the name of Yahweh and spoke instead the name Adonai, which means Lord or Master Husband in Hebrew. And later on, we took that up into English and just took that word from the Greek, Kyrios, which means Lord, and so we use that. I personally like to use the name Yahweh when I'm talking about the Old Testament to make that distinction that this is the name that God has given his people to confess that Yahweh is Yahweh Elohim. He is the God who brought them out of Egypt. So it's a confession of faith. And that's why when you go to, like, for instance, this Isaiah chapter 12 passage, where you say that uh, Yahweh is my strength and my song. I mean, typically what you're doing is you're looking back at Exodus chapter 15, which is the song of victory, that Yah, which is the shortened form of Yahweh, Yah is my strength and my song. And we, of course, get this in English when we say hallelujah. 
Yah, which is praise be to Yahweh, the one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So should we be referring to the name as Jehovah or Yahweh? I mean, this is a a point of piety and how you want to personally proclaim the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, of course, when we talk about the name of God, in particular, we talk about our baptism because we have the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit placed upon us in the waters of baptism so that we are identified as adopted children of God by grace. Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Dennis's wife has a question about fallen angels next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. Greetings in Christ, and thank you for listening to Issues Etc. If you ever find yourself visiting the Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee, please join us here at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Sevierville. We see it as a small part of our service to the church, to provide sound liturgical worship opportunities for vacationing Lutherans to our area. For worship times and directions, please visit our website at splctn.com. That's splctn.com. A blind sinner is carried to baptism administered by a pastor. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern. 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. That was the epiphany event where our eyes were opened to see the amazing grace of God in the very face of Jesus. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. You can purchase these books by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 or on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Pastor Wolfmiller, Dennis says, this is actually a question from my wife, She asks, if God created the world and said everything was good, how did we get a fallen angel? It's a great question. And apparently, goodness includes 
fallibility or whatever that word is, that's, that has to be the way we start, is that when the Lord looks at all that he created, and that would include Adam and Eve, and that would include also Lucifer and all the angels, and he looks at them and he says they're good, part of that goodness was the capacity to rebel against them. Now, how how did we get a fallen angel? The Lord apparently doesn't want us to be too concerned with that. I think the best hint we have at it is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul's warning Timothy about laying hands on a man too quickly and making him a pastor too soon, lest he be puffed up with pride and come into the same temptation as the devil. And so the mechanism of the devil's fall was pride, puffed up with pride. And somehow the devil was susceptible to that, and he was able to bring a third, we think, of all the angels. This is from Revelation chapter 12, where it says he swept a third of the stars with him, a third of the angels with him. Maybe that was his, in fact, charge. He had a third of them under his authority, and he brought them with him down to demonism and to fighting against the Lord and against God and against everything that is good, in fact. So that is the how we got the fallen angel. That's the, the hint that the Bible gives to us. But we don't know much more than that. And this is one of those places where we want to be careful to not try to know more than the Lord wants us to know. We know that he saw everything good. We know that before the fall into sin with Adam and Eve, and presumably also then with all of the angels, it was possible for them not to sin, but it was also apparently possible for them to sin, and that that possibility of sinfulness was included in the Lord's evaluation of what was good. A question for you, Pastor Ketchumar, from Diane. I'm reading the Psalms. When I read about David praying to God to destroy his enemies, it bothered me in the fact that we are to love our enemies and pray for them. Isn't this the opposite of what we've been taught? Well, Diane, this is a, a great question here about the understanding of what's the distinction between praying, petitioning God, and actually the actions that we do. So we talk about our words, and we talk about our deeds, our actions, we talk about our thoughts. And of course, what the Lord gives to us in the Psalms is the words for prayer so that we would pray to the Lord, we would petition the Lord. And the scripture teaches us that vengeance is the Lord's. And so in other words, it's his to take the vengeance, not ours. We're not to take revenge, but instead he gives to us prayers, prayers of petition that we would ask God himself to do what God promises to do, which is to bring the justice, as we were talking about before, so that we would not act upon that ourselves and try to go and do it ourselves with our own works or efforts when we don't have the vehicle or the means to do it because we're not in that office. But notice that this is what we are doing when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, and we're asking that God's will would be done. When we want God's will to be done, we are asking that he would break and hinder every evil and purpose of the devil, the world, and even our own sinful nature. Because, of course, these three do not want us to keep God's name holy, and these three do not want God's kingdom to come. And so we want God to prevent the works of the devil in the world and our own sinful nature that don't want us to hear God's word. So when we pray God's will to be done, I mean, in essence, we're doing the same things in the Psalms to stop 
the enemies from trying to prevent the kingdom from coming. Even in the Lord's Prayer too, we also ask that God would deliver us from evil, and in particular, the evil one, because of the devil himself, who is the so-called God of this world, the one who blinds the unbeliever, that ultimately we want God to put an end to all of these evil, wicked plots and plans of the devil who does not want God's kingdom to come or God's will to be done or God's name to be holy. A question for you, Pastor Wolf Miller from Kathy. My question, in the Apostles' Creed, it says Jesus descended into hell. Could you explain this to me? He told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Did he go to paradise or did he descend into hell? It's a great question. You know, we confess it in the Creed. The text that it is confessing is most closely is 1 Peter 3, verse 19, which said that Jesus made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. He was made alive, and he made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. And from that, we have the uh, confession of the descent of Jesus into hell. It's a mysterious text. It's a mysterious doctrine. And we again, we get to this careful, we want to say what the Scripture says without saying too much. We certainly don't want to say something beyond what the Scripture says, but we're here in danger of saying too much. Here's what we do know, is that Jesus descended into hell after he was made alive. So his descent was the whole Christ, not just his spiritual nature, not just his divine nature, but the whole Christ descended into hell to make a proclamation of his victory over sin, death, and the devil, and to record his triumph there, if you will. He did not go to hell to suffer. So we normally think of going to hell as after someone dies, and if they don't belong to Jesus, and, they do, and they're not forgiven by the gift of baptism, that they go to that eternal place of suffering. Jesus did not go to hell to suffer. The descent into hell is not part of his atoning work. Jesus says so clearly on the cross, it is finished, so that there is nothing more to suffer for our Lord. So that's certainly not why he goes there. And the Lutherans have also shied away from the Catholic idea of the harrowing of hell, and that is that there was a, the souls of the believers were held in a prison in the Old Testament, and that they go to be rescued by Jesus and brought into heaven. The Lutherans have shied away from that idea because the text doesn't talk about Jesus dealing with the souls of Christians, but rather with those who were condemned in the time of Noah. And so Jesus goes to make his victory over sin and death, to make that victory known to the devil and the demons. And so that's what's going on. So, so does it contradict Jesus when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise? No, we believe that when Jesus died, his body and soul were rended. That's what physical death is, the unnatural rending of body and soul. And that Jesus' soul is in the presence of the Father, like our souls will be also when we die and that the confessing thief is there with him. And then on the third day, Jesus' soul and body are reunited in the grave. That's his resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection. And that sometime in that resurrected glory, he descends into hell, makes his victory known to the devil and the demons before he appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden early on Easter Sunday morning. And that's what we confess of that text. And again, we don't want to go too far because it does remain a great mystery, but that's the thing that the scriptures indicate. Some have objected to the descent into hell, included in the Apostles' Creed, as having very little scriptural backing. It sounds to me like it has 
rather robust scriptural backing. It just doesn't explain every or answer every question we want answered. Right. It's interesting that there's two reactions that we have to the scriptures. And sometimes we say, I wish the Holy Spirit would tell us more. And then in other places we say, oh, I wish the Holy Spirit would tell us less. It's part of our approach to biblical theology is to be content with what the Lord has told us. And so we we don't have to have any kind of hesitancy for confessing Christ descended into hell. There's no reason to be hesitant at all from the scriptures. But we do want to be careful that we don't make more of it than the scripture itself does. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. Along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, we are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Mark has a question, a number of questions, about how the Old Testament people were saved next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. You're personally invited to join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in celebrating under the theme, Just As I Am, January 14th through the 20th during Life Week 2024. Each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities, online educational events, interviews, and more. For additional information, visit lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Do you dream about having stained glass windows at your church, but know they are too expensive to ever get them? Add Crucem has the solution. Our window clings are an excellent way to enhance the beauty of your church without breaking that glass ceiling. Visit adcrucem.com and reach out to us to work with you on this project. Add Crucem, established in 2014 and still going strong. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran, Hayden, Idaho. Faith Lutheran, Groton, Connecticut. Holy Cross Lutheran, Rockland, California. Emmanuel Lutheran, Sheridan, Wyoming. Mount Olive Lutheran, Billings, Montana. Pella Lutheran, Wappen, Wisconsin. Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran, Rathdrum, Idaho. St. Michael Lutheran, Portage, Michigan. St. Peter Lutheran, Dorchester, Wisconsin. And University Hills Lutheran, Denver, Colorado. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. 
When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolf Miller. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Mark has a question. He says, In the Old Testament, God rescued his people from Egypt and their other enemies. He brought them into a literal promised land, then exiled them and restored them. He established a sacrificial system for their forgiveness. From our side of the resurrection, we see clearly Christ is our salvation and know there's no other way. So was the Old Testament Hebrew saved for eternity by trusting in the blood on the doorpost and the sacrifice of animals and scapegoats? Or was understanding these things as foreshadowing Christ necessary? Abraham was credited righteous by his faith. He believed God. Is what Abraham believed and had faith in explicitly stated in Scripture? Was God a Savior enough without specifics? Is this worthy of an entire issue's segment so very grateful for issues, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe the the last one is yes, it, it is worthy of uh, uh, being an entire uh, issues uh, segment. Yeah, that that's a, a good idea, Mark. But a couple of things that I, I want to say here, just initially, is that remember when we talk about faith, faith is receiving the promise that God gives. So you can't really have faith unless you have a promise. But all of the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And so when you have multiple promises, I mean, like, for instance, we talk about the promised land. Okay, that's tied to all the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. So we want to talk about that in just a second. But before I go there, just just think about Hebrews chapter 11. It's a whole litany of the patriarchs of old who had faith in a variety of different promises and waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of these promises in Christ. In a very similar way, we ourselves, we have the promise of the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and everlasting life, but we won't see that made manifest until the last day in the resurrection of the body. So all these promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ who died for our sins, but then rose again for our righteousness and has ascended to heaven to be our mediator, our high priest, and he will come again to judge living and the dead. And we won't fully see that. It won't be made manifest until the resurrection of the body. So I think that that's going to be the key here for both the Old Testament and the New Testament as both the saints in our day and the saints in the future and all the saints in the past were looking toward this completion of the new heavens and the new earth with the resurrection of the body. So when you go back to the Old Testament, all of our promises are rooted, and I'm going to use that language, rooted in the seed of the woman, of the virgin who is going to crush the serpent's head. So you're looking for the offspring. You're looking for the son of Eve, Eve being the mother of all the living, and you're looking for the son who is going to defeat death, the one who is going to go back into the ground and come back out of the ground. Because remember, Adam initially, originally was formed from the dust of the earth and back to the dust he went. But we're looking for that day when we return once again out of the dust. So when you look at the book of Genesis itself, see the entire book that Moses 
Jesus writes as a waiting in faith in anticipation of the resurrection of the body. That when Abraham receives this promise, the same promise that was given to Adam and Eve, that was handed down to Noah and his sons, that's handed down to Shem, that's now Abraham himself fully embraces this in chapter 12, and God ties this promise to the promised land. And so it's significant about the land itself because this is a place in which you will have the baby boy of joy born in Bethlehem and then in the city of Jerusalem outside its gates, this boy of joy will be put to death and he will rise again to newness of life and to give to us the whole resurrection of the body. So in the book of Genesis, you begin with life and you have this story Again, not a myth, but the narrative of the historical events of God interacting with his people, with the promise, with those who are trusting in the promises, who walk by faith and not by sight, that you have this promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and you continually see a baby being born, and then you see one who dies. And then you see a baby born and you see one who dies. So you don't have the fullness of this promise. In fact, when Abraham receives this promise of the promised land, this is the place where the Christ will rise again in that land. Abraham himself had to purchase a little parcel of land. And what does he do with the parcel of land? Well, he buries Sarah, his wife, the one who is the wife of the promise, who has Isaac, who will eventually be the mother of Jesus, the great, 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 great grandmother. But what does Abraham do with the land? He buys a cemetery. That's what he does, because it's in the hope of the resurrection of the body. So this is why the patriarchs in Genesis, when they live, they live by faith. And when they die, they're dying in anticipation of this fulfillment. And so you see Genesis end on the note where Jacob himself on his deathbed is blessing his sons. And in that blessing, he teaches his sons to wait for the salvation of the Lord in chapter 49, or specifically, I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. And so he's waiting for that. He's anticipating it, but he doesn't see it in his lifetime. Instead, he is buried with the hope of the bodily resurrection. And so you have that note that he is going to die. He dies there in chapter 49. And then in chapter 50, you have Joseph who dies. And that's how Exodus opens up with the fact that now they're in Egypt, but when they come out of Egypt, back to the land of promise, back to the land where the promised seed will be born and crucified and risen from the dead, that the remains of Joseph himself are brought back with them from Egypt to place them to rest in the promised land. So I think the key here is going to be this hope of the resurrection of the body. And that promise that Moses gave in the book of Deuteronomy, kind of that farewell sermon in chapter 18, that a prophet like him would raise up, and that's the one that you're going to listen to. And so there's even a play on the word of raising up a prophet and Jesus who is raised up from the dead, the one who is the resurrection and the life. So in John's gospel, when we talk about that one who is the resurrection and the life, Jesus himself says that Abraham saw his day that Abraham rejoiced in him, that Abraham would rejoice with this whole promise of the Christ, the son of Abraham, in which all the nations would be blessed, that you are anticipating and waiting. And of course, Jesus talks about how 
all the prophets, Moses, the Psalms, and all the prophets proclaim this message. Jesus talks about how Moses himself is the one who wrote about him. So it's all about this person and work of Christ who will undo what the devil has done who brought sin and death into creation. And so the one who is life is the one who will restore life to us once again. Charles has a question. I've been watching a lot of videos about near-death experiences. Being skeptical by nature, I discount those where someone is trying to sell a book or gain notoriety. However, there are many that don't fall into that category and are veridical meaning that a person is reporting things that they could not have possibly seen from where their body was, conversations between family members in other parts of the hospital, for example, or one who correctly reported the placement of colored sticky notes on the back of a piece of medical equipment in the room. What I find confusing is that while many of the stories include a source of extremely bright light that they believe to be Jesus, others don't. In one story, an atheist describes being dragged toward darkness by shadowy beings, he resisted, and then they violently assaulted him. He heard a voice saying, pray to God. He didn't know how, but did remember the words, to Jesus loves me, this I know, and recited them. Shadowy beings recoiled, and he came to the light. He was apparently given one last chance to repent, which seems in direct contradiction to Scripture, Hebrews nine twenty seven. What are we to make of such events? I would dearly love to think that several of my Jewish friends who have passed away would have had one last chance to acknowledge Jesus before being condemned for all eternity? I think the answer to the question is in the text that Charles quotes, that Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man once to die and then to be judged. And that means that whatever phenomenon we're talking about is, it's right to, I mean, maybe the key word in the near-death experience is near. It wasn't a death experience. It was a near-death experience because dead is dead. And we mentioned it before, the definition of death is the unnatural rending of body and soul. And what these experiences do remind us of, at least should remind us of, is that we are not just machines. We are not just a, a kind of very complex bouncing around of molecules that results in this self-awareness and life and everything else like this. The Lord is, has made us both body and soul, and he intended for body and soul to be together forever. But when Adam and Eve broke the law of God and ate the forbidden fruit, they introduced a double death, dying you will die, but first a spiritual death, which is a lack of fear, love, and trust in God, and then physical death, which is the separation of body and soul. And so that that is the common experience of us all. Now, there are a lot of these near-death experiences, and again, what we have to emphasize in that is that it is a near-death. The picture that I have in my mind, I don't know if this is helpful, but I remember one day during the hot summer, a few years back, I was walking into the grocery store from the parking lot, and I stepped on a piece of gum that was there on the parking lot, and it stuck to the bottom of my shoe, and I didn't realize it. It probably stretched 30 feet, this thin little stretchy piece of bubble gum that I dragged all the way with me halfway through the parking lot. Now, that's the picture I use for these near-death experiences of something like this has happened, that the body and soul are being pulled apart, but there's this for some some reason, a thin connection between the two, and then they seem to snap back together. That's my best explanation of what's happening here. And again, emphasizing that it wasn't then a death, but that there was some rending of body and soul, partial rending of body and soul that that resulted in these very perplexing experiences. Now, the key for us when discerning what's happening is to listen to what it means, to listen to what is confessed. 
So I'll give an analogy. In the Reformation, one of the big fights that they were having was about purgatory. And interestingly enough, the doctrine of purgatory came not from biblical evidence, but rather from ghosts. People were seeing ghosts all the time, and they were talking about purgatory. And the, the Lutherans come along, especially Chemnitz in his examination of the Council of Trent. He says, look, we know that they're not real ghosts, but rather that they're demons, because look at the doctrine that they're teaching. So that you have to listen to the doctrine that's being taught to determine what's real. So what is the doctrine that's coming out of these so-called near-death experiences? Is it a confession of the Lord's law and gospel, or is it a confession of something else? And I think most of the time it's this confession that no matter what you believe, no matter who you are, you get embraced by this warm light, and that is from the demons, because it's just not the way it goes from the Scripture. So if there's ever an experience that has that kind of universalism, that idea that, that no one need worry about God's judgment after death, then we know that whatever was there in that experience, it was a demonic experience. Now, on the other hand, and here's a, a little more subtle thing, but we need to consider it. Even if the near-death experience aligns with what the scriptures teach, in other words, the unbeliever is near death and starts to hear screams and feel the flames and so forth, so that we would come back and say, well, that seems to be a threat of God's judgment that maybe even spurred on repentance. Here's the great danger, is that that person or the person that they tell or the person around them that are listening to them that they would put their trust in that story rather than in the scriptures. This is the same danger that happens when you have people telling these stories of five minutes in heaven or whatever, is that even when the personal experience confirms the scripture, it is not to be relied on like the scripture itself. In other words, when we confess the sufficiency of scripture, we are saying that we do not need confirmation from anything outside the Scripture, including our own experiences, to confirm what the Bible says is true. And when we start propping up the truth and reliability of Scripture with these stories, then we put ourselves in a very dangerous spiritual place of relying not on the Bible itself, but rather on the experiences that we've had. So we test the spirits to see if they're in conformity with the word. And even if they are in conformity, then that lets us know that it's real. But still, even our experiences have to stand under the authority of God's word and the words of the prophets and the apostles that we have in the Holy Scripture. Pastors Brian Wolfmiller and Brian Ketchelmeyer are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to issues, etc. Speaking of the Bible and of God's word, Here's what Pastor Will Whedon had to say in a recent article in the Issues Etc. journal called Inwardly Digesting God's Word. We pray to God that His Holy Word may not merely be a passing guest in our mind, but that we might have a stick to so that we hear it, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. Jesus wants us to swallow down His Word into our depths so that it might impart both its nourishment and its energy. You can subscribe to the online Issues Etc. journal for free. Go to our website, issuesetc.org, click the red subscription button, and enter your email address. We'll send you the latest Issues Etc. journal. When we come back, Matthew has a question about young earth creationism and the existence of the megacontinent Pangaea.
Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Unforgiveness is a prison, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January will help you break out of the unforgiveness in your own life. It's titled, Unforgivable? How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or learn more about Unforgivable at issuesetc.org. Unforgivable, How God's Forgiveness Transforms Our Lives, The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer are our guests. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Matthew says, I know we Lutherans believe in young earth creationism. I was recently talking with someone, and he asserted that the Pangaea continent was in existence before the flood. He went on to explain that the flood would have been a collection of tsunami waves and other major earthquakes that would have moved the tectonic plates to make the continents as they are today. He provided a reference to a video from GenesisApologetics.com. I told him I couldn't disagree or agree because all I can say for sure is what is in Scripture. Do we need to explain all these things to appeal to skeptics, or is it more prudent to try and shift the focus to the central part of the faith that Jesus died and rose again from the dead? Should we even grant that Pangaea existed, or is it, as I think it is, a theologically moot point? Yeah, so Matthew, again, the, the, the issue here is always that we know that faith comes through hearing the word of Christ, so that preached word of the personal work of Christ. So you're not going to argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven by any kind of a philosophical gymnastics or rationalistic way of trying to to get this person to understand, and then this person will agree. And so that that's not always going to be helpful necessarily, right? But but what we want to see, though, is that there are obstacles to individuals 
that we can help remove the obstacles so that the person can hear the gospel message, the message of the person and work of Christ himself. So it's just like we were just talking about these near-death experiences. It's something outside of the scripture itself that people always have this tendency to want to look at. You know, if only I had some miracle that I saw myself, then I would really believe. Or only if I had a vision, then I would really believe. Or if I had the scientific empirical evidence, then I would really believe. So yeah, that's an issue of of, of trying to make Christianity into an area of reason and logic and the mind, but it's it's an issue of God's word, which creates faith. Now, the idea of this one continent, this grand piece of land, I mean, it, it's not something contrary to scripture. So by no stretch of the imagination is it contrary to the scripture. But if one is only spending all his or her time trying to find all the facts and the figures of what happened with the possibility of this land and the speculations that are out there, no matter how hard you try to to get all the right answers, argumentation, you're going to come to an individual. And if the individual is closed off, refusing to listen, because remember, it's the devil who puts a veil over the eyes of the unbelievers so that they can't believe the gospel. Or even when Moses is read, there's a veil that's over them. It's only the Holy Spirit himself that's going to convert the heart, open the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Again, this is related to the idea of an extra biblical revelation because you're looking for something outside the scripture itself to try to make somebody into a believer. Like when Jesus talks about how Lazarus the poor man and the rich man, they die. And the rich man says, hey, I've got these brothers who don't believe in this. If you would just send Lazarus back from the dead, well, then they would really believe. But of course, Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets and don't believe, they're not going to believe even if somebody raises from the dead. And in fact, even when Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by the apostles and the disciples in Jerusalem there still were those people who did not believe and they did not believe. And uh, it's always going to be an issue of obstacles. I mean, because the problem is a spiritual battle. It's the devil who blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. So is it bad to engage in these kinds of discussions? No, it's not bad. Is it worth your time to look at these uh, ideas of how you can remove obstacles? By no means is that a bad use of time, but just understand fundamentally that you cannot change the heart by giving a list of argumentation or data or facts that you've learned, because that individual who has a heart that's been hardened and does not believe is always going to come back with a different rationalistic, logical conclusion that, well, that doesn't make sense to me, and so therefore I don't believe. So you'll never be able to to please that individual, to satisfy the individual. Did you give enough evidence or proof outside the scripture, some extra biblical thing that you can obtain from from creation. Because remember, there is natural revelation 
okay? This natural revelation in nature itself that you have, that you can see around you, that there's a creator, but it's in the scripture itself, which is the revealed. I should say, it's not really natural revelation. I shouldn't say natural revelation, but what you can obtain from nature in contrast to the revealed knowledge. It's a natural knowledge that you gain from nature. And if you're just fighting with somebody about natural knowledge, you're never going to give them the whole revelation of Jesus, which is only found in the scripture. That scripture itself gives us certainty. It gives us the assurance that we have salvation in the name of Jesus, and there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Pastor Wolf Miller, Jacob in Pleasant Hill, Iowa says, it is often said by my friends that Luther was a mean, hateful, and crude pastor. In this way, I have heard some accuse local pastors of being too Luther-like as a way of calling them mean, hateful, or crude, or maybe stodgy. Do you think Luther is like this? What should the personality of a pastor be? I love the show, and I cannot wait for this year's Making the Case conference. Hey, I'm excited for the conference, too. I have been studying Luther a lot. In fact, we have a, in the Worldwide Bible class, we do every week, we've been reading through Luther's commentary on Genesis, and I think you start to get the measure of the man by especially his teaching. This is classroom teaching, so these were lectures that were recorded and then published. And it's true that Luther can be, when he's going after something, he goes after it. When he's arguing, especially against false doctrine, he doesn't hold back. I was just looking at a passage from Luther on Matthew 5, where he says salt has to retain its saltiness. And he talks about this, the, the ministry of salting, that we have to be discerning. We cannot let false teaching work its way into the church, because if it's if you're not salting, then it's rotting, and it's gathering worms, and it's falling apart. So God's Word itself has that saltiness to it, and Luther has that saltiness to him when he's doing this discerning work. But there's also a very compassionate, tender, gentle, pastoral side to Luther that comes up over and over again. And, and what are you going to get? I think Maybe the best analogy comes from Luther himself. This is his introduction to his Greater Galatians commentary, or maybe it's commentary on like verse 1 or 2. And he talks about how Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, launches into them. Who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? There's no thanksgiving. He's just right into condemnation. And he is fiery. Paul is fiery in that epistle to the Galatians. And Luther says, well, why? Because he's going after these false teachers and their false doctrine. So Luther then says this, he says, we have to distinguish, if there's an accident and say a dog bites the child, we have to distinguish between the dog and the child, between the one who's biting and the one who's being bitten, and we kick the dog and we comfort the child. And so it is with false doctrine. When there's false doctrine that's out there, we have to kick those who are false teaching and we have to comfort those who are falsely taught. Now, it's easy to mess that up because we, when we start kicking and comforting, the danger is we comfort the wrong person and kick the wrong person, and so we have to be careful. In fact, I think we probably assume that we're dealing with children rather than dogs, and we start with comforting until it proves itself to be not the case, and then we start the kicking. But Luther does have both that kicking and comforting in his ministry, and oh, that more pastors would be described as being too Luther-like. I mean, I think that careful distinction between law and gospel that Luther demonstrated in in so much of his own teaching would be very helpful. Word of caution doesn't mean that we follow Luther in everything that he did. It is uh, the Lord Jesus who is the head of the church, and all of his prophets and apostles are the authoritative teachers in the church. And Luther is helpful to us, 
because he points to Christ. And so we want to make sure that we constrain ourselves to that helpfulness and don't start to follow the man, but to rejoice that God used him to bring so much clarity to the scriptures. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Steph Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, thanks. Thank you. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is associate pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thanks to you. Oh, you are most welcome. When we come back in Hour 2 of Issues, etc., Dr. Craig Evans joins us. First, we will go through Biblical Archaeology's Top Discoveries of 2023. Then, we will talk about the history of modern Pentecostalism with Dr. Nancy Almodovar. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m., Bible Study and Sunday School at 9.30 a.m., as we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at villagelutheranchurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you.